This week we're talking about incarceration in our country, and we'll begin with a conversation about juvenile justice. This morning, the Supreme Court hears arguments in two cases that have serious implications for children convicted of homicide. The question before the court is this. If a citizen under 18 years of age commits murder, is life without parole cruel and unusual punishment? Joining us now, Terry Maroney, professor at Vanderbilt Law School and an expert on juvenile justice. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about these two cases, one out of Arkansas, one out of Alabama. What's, uh, what are the, what's the essential question in these cases? The essential question in these cases is whether, the, whether it is unconstitutional to impose a life without parole sentence on a juvenile who's convicted of a homicide. So several years ago, the Supreme Court decided that it was unconstitutional to impose the death penalty on a juvenile convicted of any crime, including a homicide. And in the wake of that decision, the Supreme Court went on a few years later to decide that it was similarly unconstitutional to impose a life without parole sentence on a juvenile convicted of a non-homicide. So the In a non-legally binding portion of that latter decision, the court intimated that the result might be different if the child had been convicted of a homicide offense. And that's the question that's been teed up by the two cases today. Terry, can you kind of explain the evolution of juvenile justice? I mean, there was a time when there weren't a lot of protections for, for children under the age of 18 in our criminal justice system. How has that changed? Absolutely. Um, Prior to around the year 1900, there were virtually no protections for youth in our criminal justice system whatsoever. The only protection was what was called the infancy defense, which basically meant that children who were under the age of seven could not be tried or convicted of any crimes. But above that, it was sort of fair game. And that, when people realized that, again, at the turn of the prior century, people realized that that was actually a really terrible way to deal with children and adolescents, that essentially what we were doing is we were losing the opportunity to take advantage of the incredible capacity for learning and change during adolescence and basically consigning extremely young children to uh, learn to be better criminals, essentially by, by consigning them to the same institutions as adult criminals, by depriving them of any chance really to change um, and to learn from their mistakes. And so we essentially invented what has turned out to be one of the most spectacularly successful innovations in criminal justice anywhere, which is the American juvenile justice system, which has now been replicated in virtually the entire rest of the world. And what we have done in juvenile justice over the last century in America is to say, there's a middle stage of human development. There's childhood, there's adulthood, and in between there's this very, very critical period called adolescence. And during that period of adolescence, juveniles are capable of doing very bad things. Um, But what we do know for sure is that they have an incredible capacity to learn and to change. And what we need to do is design legal consequences that help teach them what it means to be responsible for your actions while not disabling them from their future life chances. So American juvenile justice has been working for the last century to kind of pull off that very difficult task. And we've been pulling it off actually fairly well. The idea is not that uh, teenagers have no consequences for their actions because that would actually be a bad message to send them. The idea is that we assign consequences that, that disable but do not disfigure and that preserve the chance if the person is capable of changing of letting them change and taking advantage of the juvenile's capacity for change. 
But yeah. something that is very much at issue in the cases today is that in the 1980s and 1990s, that started that started to change, and America started to back off from this very good idea of Why? juvenile justice. What was going on in the 1980s that made I mean, that's when we started to see more and more kids tried as adults, which we actually see Absolutely. relatively regularly now. Why? It's a it's a terrific question. There was a scare essentially. What what happened was two things. One thing that really did happen is there was a spike in juvenile homicides. It was a very short-lived spike and juvenile crime has actually been in very significant declines every year since essentially 1994 and it's still declining today. The people often think the converse is true. So there was a still rather unexplained spike in juvenile homicides. But what accompanied that was essentially a moral scare where a number of academics <clears throat> came forward and said what we're looking at here is the birth of a new sort of juvenile. And they called them the juvenile super predator. And a number of scholars, including John DiIulio at Princeton, for example, said we need to get out in front of this wave of juvenile super predators and stop them before they take us over. And that was um, remarkably effective. And literally every single jurisdiction, save I believe three in the United States, changed their juvenile laws in essentially a five-year period in the early 1990s to make it easier to try juveniles as adults and to assign far more draconian sentences to juveniles who are tried and convicted as adults. And that's where we saw the birth of juvenile life without parole sentences. Um, and that's why we're in the situation we're in today. It's very critical to note, though, that all those predictions about juvenile super predators were 100% wrong. And in fact, John DiIulio has signed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court today saying that he was wrong, um, as have a number of other academics and people who made the same prediction. So essentially, we're, we're living in a hangover period where we changed our laws quite dramatically to up the consequences for juveniles based on an empirical prediction that turned out to be false. Although you have also, I want to mention, signed on to an amicus brief saying life without parole for juveniles uh, violates the Eighth Amendment. Is that, is that correct? I have actually signed on to the same amicus brief that John DiIulio signed on to, saying that the empirical predictions upon which uh, juvenile life without parole sentences was based has turned out to be untrue. That's correct. Is there a case in which a, a juvenile has um, enough of a record, has a pattern of behavior, it commits such a violent offense that trying them as an adult and putting them away for life is justified, do you think? No, there's not. Um, and that's because the one thing that we know for sure about children, including older adolescents, is that they will change, and they will change a lot. The story of a child's life has not yet been written, and we cannot possibly say that we can tell right now what the end of the story is going to be. But that is what a juvenile life without parole sentence does. And it doesn't matter how heinous the crime is, how poor the person's record is. They still have, by virtue of being a child, they have this capacity for change. Now, they may not change, or they may change potentially for the worse. And if they don't change and they don't change for the better, then we have an opportunity to check in with them later and see how they're doing later. What we can't do is to say we can tell today who that person is going to be when he or she is 85 years old. What we can't do is say we have the capacity to know today that that person will never be fit to join, rejoin human society. That is a preposterous to think that we can make that judgment at the outset. Well, as the Supreme Court will be ruling on that very question, Terry Maroney is professor at Vanderbilt University Law School and an expert on juvenile justice. Thank you so much. 
Thank you for having me. Since WNYC's first broadcast in 1924, we've been dedicated to creating the kind of content we know the world needs. In addition to this award-winning reporting, your sponsorship also supports inspiring storytelling and extraordinary music that is free and accessible to all. To get in touch and find out more, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org.